You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Anna Friedrich. Anna is one of the workers at the Southborough branch of Labrie, and this lecture is entitled Friendship and Redemption in the Story of Ruth, How Self-Giving Loyalty Changes Everything. I was recently listening to a lecture by the Old Testament scholar Ian Proven, and he was talking about the prophet Jonah. Not the best prophet. Uh, When a prophet hears God's call, they're meant to respond with a yes. But instead, Jonah runs from God, as you know. And Proven really opened my eyes to something that's harder to see in the English, but it's clear in the Hebrew, that as Jonah runs from God, there is quite a descent in the story. Uh, We see that he goes down to Joppa, and then he gets on this ship, he goes below deck. And then, as you know, there's a storm, and he gets thrown into the sea, And then if you can go deeper than that, he gets swallowed by a great fish. So he keeps going down, down, down. The extreme version of what Dick might call getting egg on your face. (laughs) The book of Ruth starts similarly. There is a deep dive. Not the same directional language as we see in Jonah. But things are bleak, and they keep getting bleaker. Here's how it begins. In the days when the judges ruled. That's a rough start already. (laughs) The book of Judges comes right before the book of Ruth. And if you know your, at least in the English Bible, if you know your Bible a little bit, you might know this refrain throughout the book of Judges. Can you say it with me? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Whoa, you guys are good. So this was a time when people used their sight, their limited personal vision, rather than God's revelation, to help them know right from wrong. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Sound a bit like our day? This was a time of anarchy. This was a time of lawlessness, and this is the setting of the book of Ruth. Let's look at the next phrase. There was a famine in the land. Okay, for the covenant people of God in Old Testament times, this means something. If the land is not being fruitful, isn't doing the thing that land is meant to do, this means rebellion, this means judgment. However, the law also prescribed what God's people should do in response to a famine. They should return to the Lord. They should repent and come back to the Lord. Let's see if that's what happens. (laughs) The next phrase, 
We're introduced to an Israelite family, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And what do they do? In the face of a famine, they leave the promised land. That's not what they were commanded to do when facing a famine. They leave the promised land and they go to Moab of all places. This is not just like moving to Knoxville. <laughs> not that I'm calling Knoxville Moab. I don't know, I'm not from Tennessee. <laughs> this isn't just like moving to a neighboring town. Do you know where the nation of Moab began? It began in a cave, not far from Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot was hiding out after he'd survived with his two daughters. And his two daughters, desperate for an heir, desperate for a family, proceed to get their father drunk, and they rape him. One of those babies, that was the beginning of Moab. And this would have been alive and well in Hebrew consciousness. So to hear that an Israelite family moves to Moab would have had the sound of incestual rape. This is the people group they're going to. This is not what they were meant to do. Next, it says, and they lived there. They stayed there. First they were maybe just sojourning, but they stay. Right after that, in the story, we see three deaths. Death, death, death. And if anything happens three times in the Old Testament, we are meant to pay close attention. It's serious. First the father dies, and then the sons marry Moabites, also prohibited. Ten years they're married and never have any children, so ten years of barrenness. And then both sons die without an heir. This is the first five verses of Ruth. <laughs> People love to skim right on past this, but this is how it starts. And it keeps on, okay? The deep dive doesn't relent. Just take a minute and see if you can now imagine something worse than this. All of this in the background. Can you imagine anything much worse than an aging woman grieving in deep grief, right? She's lost her husband and all of her children. It's almost unimaginable. She's a woman in the ancient times, so incredibly vulnerable. She's in real danger. Remember, it's the time of the judges. She's a foreigner now. She's a refugee, essentially, in Moab. And now imagine her traveling over treacherous terrain. Can you imagine anything much worse than that? Has anybody read The Road by Cormac McCarthy? (laughs) Images of that story come to mind at this point in this story for me. Can you imagine anything worse? No? How about three women? Because that's where we are in the story. Three women in this situation. That's the beginning. Figuratively, we are at the bottom of the sea. Literally, these women are now on the dusty road back to Bethlehem in a desperate state. Where is Yahweh? Where is Israel's covenant-making, covenant-keeping God the great I am, the creator, the one true Lord. Where is he at this point in the story? What is he up to? These are meaningful questions. They're honest questions. No doubt they are questions we also ask 
in our own desperate times. The unfolding story of Ruth is a response to questions like this. It's a testimony. And what a gift it is to us. We're not left on that dusty, desperate road with Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, this family that swelled to six and then was cut in half, this family that Sandy Richter calls an unfamily by ancient understanding. Where is Yahweh? What is he doing? The story will show us that he remains faithfully at work. Jesus, a thousand years later, would say, my father is always at his work. And what is his work? Redemption. This is a story of redemption. The verb to redeem and its derivatives are used 20 times in this little four-chaptered book. To redeem was, of course, originally a legal term, not a religious term. It was a good provision of the law, whereby someone in a family had the role of redeemer. Their job was to buy back land or people who had been lost or sold for whatever reason. They brought things back into right relationships. Maybe you've heard of phrases um, from the book of Ruth translated kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer, I think the NIV uses. Basically, families needed and had redeemers. And this story in Ruth is about the legal proceedings of Elimelech's family, but the redemption in Ruth reaches and spreads so broadly, so deeply, and so beautifully That an honest question of mine, and I have had a long relationship with this book, I love it, an honest question of mine is, what doesn't get redeemed in this story? What doesn't get touched or transformed by this work of bringing things back into right relationship? So, in order for us to explore this together, I'd like to tell the story. Tell the story in four scenes. That's how the narrator divides it, and thankfully our chapters correlate. It's not always true in our English Bibles, but thankfully here it does. So let's look at these four scenes with this question in our hearts. How far does redemption go? How wide, how deep is it? What is its scope? What is its variety? Essentially, we are looking for redemption's size. So we're going to do it scene by scene. Four scenes. Scene one, I've given you this scene mostly already. There's a very bleak beginning, death, 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 but then I left out one little part so I can tell it now. Naomi hears that Yahweh has provided relief from the famine. And that is what prompts her to return to Israel. And again, she's not just moving house to a new town, this is returning to the covenant land the covenant people. This is returning to Yahweh. At least she's making a move. We're going to hear from her in a bit. It's a little bit of a move, at least. Maybe her stomach led this move, but she is moving back to Yahweh. 
Return is in fact used in chapter 1. The word is used 12 times just in chapter 1. So we've got Naomi and her two daughters-in-law returning to Israel. One daughter-in-law decides not to return. This is Orpah. This isn't demonized. This is the normal, culturally acceptable decision to go start over. And then Naomi gives this long speech. It's almost comical, her speech, saying, even if I got married tonight, even if I got pregnant tonight, even if the baby happened to be a son, would you two wait for that for him or both of them to grow up so that they could marry you again and you could produce an heir? No. I cannot produce an heir for you to marry. So Orpah decides not to return, but Ruth clings. Such a wonderful but in the Bible. There's lots of great buts. But Ruth clings. She clings to Naomi with unprecedented vows. You might know them. They might be a bit familiar to you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And may this God, who is now my God, Yahweh, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates the two of us. Ruth clings to Naomi. However, she's also clinging to Yahweh. This is a conversion moment for Yahweh. That's important to recognize. So Naomi relents, says, okay, you can come back with me. The two of them make it all the way back to Bethlehem. The town can't recognize Naomi, we're told. And Naomi has another little speech. She says, Yahweh's hand has gone out against me. Yahweh has destroyed my life. Don't even call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara. I've got nothing left but bitterness. And Yahweh's the one who's done this. I'm empty, she says. I can't help but imagine Ruth in the background who just made these amazing vows. Kind of like, really, you're empty? I mean, I just promised to stick with you till death do us part, but okay, you got nothing? All right. So they're back in Bethlehem, but in a rough place. All right, this is how our story begins. This is still scene one. They're back in Bethlehem, In a rough place, but praise be, this scene ends with this little phrase. Just as the barley harvest was beginning. The last phrase in chapter 1. This always reminds me of, um, I think it's in Luke's gospel, in the Passion narrative. Well, no, Jesus has died, he's been buried. It's before Sunday morning. Or no, it's right after his crucifixion, I guess. And Luke says, um, the Sabbath was about to begin. I know, of course, he's talking about what's happening throughout the week, but it's this little, this little seed of hope. Sabbath is coming, and here, harvest is coming. So this first scene, if we are looking for redemption size, this first scene mostly shows us how much needs redeeming. It also shows us that redemption starts with Yahweh. It is, first of all, and most fully, Yahweh's work. What brought Naomi home? She heard Yahweh had provided for his people. It all starts and flows from him. Who sends the current 
that makes for the wave of redemption that is about to wash over this whole town? Yahweh, God, the Lord. That's the end of scene one. Scene two opens with Ruth, who has a plan of gleaning, a plan to glean. This was, again, a provision of the law to go and collect grain. People who were destitute, people who were in need, could collect grain from the edges of the fields, the leftovers from the harvester's work. So Ruth initiates providing for Naomi by gleaning at the beginning of scene two. Then we find out there are at least some law-abiding people in the time of the judges in Israel. And Ruth just so happens, that's what it says in English, just so happens into this faithful Jewish man's field. Uh, I think it's Bruce Walkie that says the Hebrew is emphatic here. It's as if it happened to happen or it chanced to chance (laughs) that she ends up in Boaz's field. We see faith-filled, gracious interactions between Boaz and his workers. They say, the Lord bless you, the Lord be with you. Then we hear that Ruth's reputation has preceded her. She's working in this field. The narrator gives us a little glimpse of the overseer and Boaz. Boaz saying, hey, who's that girl? The overseer says, have you heard what she has done for her mother-in-law? And you wouldn't believe how hard she's worked. She's taken one rest. She's out here collecting food for the both of them. Then Boaz and Ruth converse. And he prays for her. You ever think of it like that? He says, Yahweh bless you. He prays that she would be sheltered by this God, his God, the one true God under whose, under whose wing she has come to take refuge. They have a little conversation. He blesses her kindness, her radical loyalty to Naomi. Boaz invites him to, sorry, invites her to eat with him, to stay in his field for the whole of the harvest. He's incredibly generous. He even tells his workers, just pull some stuff, pull some stocks out and leave them. Give her some of the good stuff. And then we see Ruth head back home to Naomi with the equivalent of about 50 pounds of grain on her back. So she returns to Naomi with grain and with a story. And then the scene ends by telling us Ruth stays in Boaz's field and stays with Naomi. All right, that's my summary of scene two. What is redemption's size in scene two? First of all, Ruth initiates the plan to redeem, the plan to get food back into Naomi's life, back into Naomi's belly. Ruth initiates this plan. Of course, something of the redemption in this chapter is that the land is fruitful again. There are fields in which to glean, so the land is experiencing redemption. This just so happened. We're going to see it throughout the story. This is redemption because it's God's providence named It's God's people recognizing that he is faithfully at work. We see Israel's role experiencing some redemption in this chapter, right? The stranger is being welcomed. That's what they were meant to do. The widows are being cared for generously. We see that happening even in the field as Boaz is so generous. 
We even see town gossip touched by redemption. Town gossip is like a character throughout this whole story. It's lovely, and we're going to see it. In the first scene, you know, when they first get back to Bethlehem, it's as if the town says about Naomi, who is this? They don't even recognize her. And now in scene two, it's as if the whole town is saying of Ruth, who is this? Who is this? That she would do this for her mother-in-law, that she would work like this for this old woman. So the town gossip tastes redemption. Ruth, the Moabite, gets praised and blessed in this scene. Ruth keeps being called Ruth, the Moabite, by the narrator. But that begins to shift. It's like we're supposed to be aware. This is a pagan we're talking about. This is someone from Moab we're talking about. But Boaz, when he talks to Ruth, in the field, he says to her, I've heard all about how you left your father and mother and went to a place you did not know. Does that remind you of anything? He's using Abraham language, the patriarch, and he's applying it to Ruth the Moabite. It's pretty profound redemption of her identity, of who she is, who she's assumed to be. And lastly, Naomi we start seeing a shift in her tone. The first speech, all about bitterness. Now we have a little speech where she says, Yahweh has not forgotten me. Has not forgotten. And she reads that just so happened to get into Boaz's field as the hand of Yahweh at work. So this is the size of redemption in scene two. We can see that it's spreading, it's touching different people, different aspects of life in Bethlehem. We're on to scene three. There's only four. We're on to scene three. It begins with another little conference between Naomi and Ruth. But now Naomi initiates a plan for redemption. And she starts it with, my daughter, which is a distinct phrase showing Naomi's relating to Ruth like a true daughter of Israel. She doesn't call her Ruth the Moabite. There's a shift in how how Ruth is spoken to. She says, my daughter, I have a plan for you. You know, the threshing floor scenario. It's a plan to redeem Ruth's circumstances. She gives her instructions. We saw in chapter 1, Ruth went out to provide for Naomi. And now Naomi has a plan to provide for Ruth. She gives her instructions, go to the threshing floor. After they're done threshing, separating the grain from the bad stuff, the chaff. Get beautified, change your clothes, which may have just been a signal for Ruth to get out of her mourning clothes and into regular clothes. Go to the threshing floor, lie down at his feet, he'll tell you what to do. Ruth obeys. However, she seems to improvise as well in the conversation. Asks him to redeem. Asks him to be the redeemer who's meant to be in their family. He responds positively, but tells her about another redeemer. A guy who has dibs on the land. And then he tells her to stay. Stay at my feet until morning. No, you're all waiting. Yes, there are immense sexual overtones in this scene in the book of Ruth for sure and we can talk more about that if you want in the Q&A but I'm convinced that the narrator kind of heightens all of that to say you know he's he's worked hard to tell the story 
of how this is a man of good standing. He has integrity. This is a woman of, of integrity. She's a woman of good standing. The same phrase is applied to her. And now it's dark. They're on the threshing floor. She's obviously made an offer of marriage. What's going to happen? I think the narrator builds all that to say, and they don't do it. And they resist temptation. She stays at his feet, yes. But then the next morning, he gives her another huge bundle of grain to carry home to Naomi as a promise that he will keep his word. He'll check to see if the other redeemer will do it. If he won't, he will redeem. So again, we have Ruth returning home to Naomi with a massive bundle of grain on her back and another story. And then Naomi says, we wait. We wait and see what Boaz will do. And that's the end of scene three. So let's look at redemption size in scene three. Remember how in scene one, Ruth initiated a plan to redeem the situation? Now Naomi initiates a plan to redeem. Do you remember how in the first chapter I told you the word return is used 12 times? Well, every scene, every one of these four scenes in the book of Ruth also has this returning, um, maybe we could say leitmotif in every single scene where the characters are returning someplace at the end of that scene. So, first chapter, Naomi and Ruth returning to Bethlehem. Second chapter ends with Ruth returning from the field back home to Naomi. Third chapter ends with Ruth returning from the threshing floor back to Naomi. There's this repeated coming home which is also telling us the story of redemption. According to Bruce Walkie, this is theology through narrative. We're being taught, come home to the Lord, chapter after chapter in the book of Ruth. Next, the land, of course. The land is what's being talked about. The land in general is tasting redemption, because there's obviously a harvest to be threshed. The land in particular is experiencing redemption because they're talking about Elimelech's land coming back to the rightful owners, the right family. Ruth, the Moabite, her names, what she's called, her identity keeps shifting. At first, when she's in Boaz's field, there's this language of her being a servant, less than a servant. Then she starts being called by terms that, that indicate a servant who cannot marry. Then she's called a servant who could marry. There's there's shifts in her name. And then Boaz also calls her my daughter on the threshing floor. She's a true daughter of Israel. She's come into the fold. And then a relationship to the law. I think we see something of that being redeemed in this chapter. Let's just talk about the gleaning law, first of all. Okay, the gleaning law required that corners be left and poor people be allowed to pick up leftovers, right? We've already seen that Boaz kind of stretches that, or rather understands it, (laughs) understands how to live the law and say that it's about generosity to those who need food. And then we see it again here. Maybe the way that he handled sharing food in the field gave Naomi and Ruth the courage to ask him on the threshing floor to go beyond the kinsman redeemer law because when she lays at his feet and says spread your garment over me 
She is inviting him to do more than just buy the land, right? That's what the law required. It did not require Boaz to marry anybody. Some people think they could be applying the Leverate Law, which is another Old Testament law that says if a man dies, his brother should marry the wife and have children with her. Boaz is not a brother. That law does not apply. And yet Ruth is bold on the threshing floor to say, yes, redeem the land, but I'm asking you to redeem more than land. Because what that law is about is taking care of us. (laughs) Would you take care of us? And the word she uses, spread your garment, the corner of your garment over me, the exact same word that Boaz used in the field in chapter 1 when he talks about Ruth taking refuge under Yahweh's wing. That word wing is the same as the corner of your garment. So she says, remember how you prayed that Yahweh would take care of me? Uh, could you be the wing? <laughs> you know, be the wing, I'm asking you. And if I need, I'm asking you to be the wing. So we see a redemption of prayer, even, in this chapter. Prayer turning into action, turning into care for those who need it the most, the most vulnerable at this moment. And then the role of Israel, again, as I mentioned in the previous scene. We see here that this Israelite man is is ready to care for a foreigner. He's ready to care for two widows. Look at the size of redemption in scene three. It's big. Scene four. I'm going to summarize it again, and then we'll talk about the size. This is the last scene. It opens with Boaz keeping his word... Right early in the morning, he goes to the town gate, which is something like the courthouse in ancient times. He follows the law, carefully gathering the elders to be witnesses. The other relative just so happens to come by. Boaz presents the situation to him. The other redeemer says, yes, I will redeem. Then no, when he finds out how costly it is. And then Boaz can step forward and officially say yes. I will redeem the land and Ruth and Naomi. Then we see that Ruth becomes Boaz's wife. Yahweh enables her to conceive. She has a son. The town rejoices, blesses Yahweh. And then there's a genealogy of that baby at the very end. What is the size of redemption in scene four? First of all, Boaz initiates the plan at the beginning of this one. He initiates a plan to redeem the land and redeem these two women. We see the just so happens again. God's providence at work being named. Of course, the land, the family line, this is the, <clears throat> this is the legal redemption that we've been waiting for. Elimelech and Malon are back in what Sandy Richter calls the kinship circle of Israel. Ruth, of course, experiences major redemption in this final scene. She's a wife again, and she's a mother. It's initiated by Yahweh that she's able to conceive. Remember Naomi's speech in chapter 1? She goes on and on and on. I could never have a son, even if I got married, even if I got pregnant. I'm not going to have a son. And in scene 4, the whole town says, Naomi has a son. 
the beautiful redemption of what she thought could never be happening in, in this final scene, in scene four. The town gossip turns to praise and blessing. Ruth is even blessed to be like Israel's matriarch. It's hard for us to understand what a, what a potent um, honoring this was, to name her with Rachel and Leah and Tamar. And then we see the baby, Obed. Obed is born. We find out he becomes the grandfather of Israel's greatest king, King David. That's the last piece of scene four. Look how much gets redeemed. Yahweh is mentioned in both chapter one and chapter four as the one who um, brings relief from the famine and the one who enables Ruth to conceive. The curses in the Old Testament for the people of Israel, when they rebelled against the Lord, the curses were barrenness of land and barrenness of body. And the narrator of the book of Ruth brings Yahweh, the narrator brings Yahweh into the story only twice to show us God making both land and body fruitful again. And what Yahweh started, Yahweh completes. It's this full circle redemption. The final coming home of this scene, the return that happens is Naomi and Ruth at home with Yahweh, at home with each other, in Bethlehem, with Boaz, with a new child. And we know this child to be in the line of the Messiah, the whole world's kinsman redeemer. The scene ends with a baby boy in Bethlehem. Where do you think our imaginations are meant to go? What is the size of redemption in chapter 4? It's cosmic. So I hope by now you see this all-encompassing redemption in Ruth. Initiated by Yahweh, it reaches into even the most desperate times washes over people, their past, their present, their future, with a flood of redemption. I hope that from now on you will imagine a wave when you think of the book of Ruth, a wave of redemption. As long as you're not scared of the ocean, then it won't work. (laughs) A wave of redemption. So we have now traveled the whole journey of this story. Or... We've ridden the waves, you could say. (laughs) And we've seen the size of Yahweh's redeeming work. But I would also like to talk not just about the size of Yahweh's redemption work, but the surprise in Yahweh's redemption work. Redemption's surprise. Maybe it's already been apparent to you, but let's name a couple surprises here. Yes, it's initiated by Yahweh. That is clear that the narrator wants us to understand that and delight in that and trust in that. But in this story, things and people are brought back into right relationship, redeemed, through the choices and actions of two women. This wouldn't have been popular 
at the time, or even plausible. It's not even a plausible idea in ancient times. As commentator Dean Ulrich puts it, in a male-centered culture, these husbandless, sonless women hold no interest to anyone except Yahweh. That is the first big surprise in this redemption. Two women are two of the heroes. And Carolyn Custis James says in her book that's out on the book table, The Gospel of Ruth, she kind of quips that the book of Ruth is all about one good man, but two good women. (laughs) It's not a competition, but two women. And one of them is a Moabite, a pagan woman. This is the surprising, redeeming work of God. It's like Ruth. That's who the name. That's who the book is named after. It's like this pagan woman is showing Israel how it's done. And this is a surprise. Remember how every scene starts with somebody initiating a plan. They're given a turn to be a part of this redemptive plan. Well, the women lead the way under Yahweh, under his good plan and good work. Ruth is the first to initiate, then Naomi initiates, then Boaz initiates. So that's the first big surprise. It comes through two women. Second, it is their friendship that is the major conduit of redemption. Their self-sacrificial loyalty to each other gets center stage in this story. And this is not a likely friendship. Naomi was not the kind of woman, especially at the beginning, that I, at least, would generally seek out to, you know, make lifelong vows to. I might endure someone like that for a couple hours, but that's about it. How often in our day, when things get tough in a relationship, have you heard, or maybe you've even said yourself, I didn't sign up for this. I love to imagine Ruth on that road, back to Bethlehem, Orpah's figures fading in the distance. I love to imagine her saying, I sign up for this. I sign up for this. We see these two laying aside their own ease, their own comfort in order to love each other, in order to love each other like Yahweh loves. Again, Carolyn Custis James says, Ruth gives up her happy ending on that dusty road. She didn't know how the story would end, we know, but they had no clue. And Naomi, to send her to the threshing floor, it, did not in, it didn't guarantee that she too would be cared for by Boaz. So we see both of them giving of themselves, self-sacrificing. They're looking to the interests of others. They're outdoing one another in love is the conduit that God honors as the major means of redemption in this story. People love to think of this story as a little romance novel, kind of tucked in the Old Testament among all the hard stuff like the plagues and the conquest and whatnot. At least we have this little romance. (laughs) But I'm convinced it is more about friendship. And that's a surprise. And it's between a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. It's like the joke is so old. (laughs) This is surprising. Ruth, in fact, in Hebrew, means friend. It's a book about a friend. 
Isn't this encouraging? Does this encourage you? (laughs) This kind of massive redemption can come about through friendship. How accessible is that? All right, we have talked about redemption's size. We've talked about redemption's surprise. And my hope is that this will have brought you to a point of seeing an invitation. Wondering, how can I be a part of this kind of redemption in the world? Can it really be as simple as be a good friend? I believe we are meant to glean, pun intended, to glean this from this story. Redemption can feel like this huge, otherworldly thing that God deals with. I don't know what my role could be. The story of Ruth invites us to be a friend. To be a friend like Ruth, like Naomi, like Yahweh, essentially. Be this kind of friend. So I'd like to end with a few observations of the kind of friendship in the book of Ruth. What kind of friendship could be included in redemption of this scale? So four observations. I feel like there are dozens of treasures to take out of the story. So I've really exhibited self-control to only give four (laughs) observations about their friendship. It's been hard. Sarah had to help me do it. Four observations. How can things worth practicing? How can we be imitators of this redemptive friendship? First of all, it is a friendship that required bodies. Does that sound strange to you? It is a friendship. You know, when I first started thinking about this, that it's an embodied friendship, I thought about. Ruth and Naomi on that road, Ruth kind of bracing her, using her body to support her, to help her. And then I thought about Ruth going out to glean, using her muscles, her sweat, in order to love her well. And that big bundle, 50 pounds of grain, her carrying it back. I was thinking along these lines. Oh yeah, then in the next scene, another big bundle of grain she's carrying back to Naomi. And then I realized, even in the fourth scene, She's carrying a child and giving it to Naomi. This is a story of friendship that requires bodies. It's not a friendship that could exist solely via text. (laughs) It's not a friendship that could just be made up of scrolling through a feed and liking or loving. It requires muscle and sweat. It requires legs and lungs. Can you remember people who have helped you move? People who have helped you move house? There is just something distinct about someone employing their body to love you and to care for you well. And that is absolutely essential to this friendship. And I think it's an important corrective for our day, too. In our hyper-sexualized culture... It is hard to imagine how a body can be a part of a friendship without it becoming sexual. It's hard for us to imagine that. But it's an excellent question to ask and to take from this story. How might my body be a part of this friendship? 
how might God be inviting me to be embodied in this friendship? So that's the first observation. It is embodied. Second observation about their friendship that we might imitate. It is a prayerful friendship. I've already, or maybe I haven't mentioned, there are ten prayers in the book of Ruth. Many of them are benedictions, they're words of blessing, um, but it's a friendship dependent on God that recognizes the redemption and the care and the love that they can experience between them is embedded within God's good care, God's good providential work. And as I said, often the words that are prayed in this book are shortly thereafter followed up by action. We are invited to be part of the answers of our prayers for our friends. Not just to pray for them, but to be willing to even use our bodies to be a part of the answer. So it's a prayerful friendship. Third, this is a friendship that is improvised. By that I mean, we talk about spending time with friends, we talk about spending money on friends. What about spending creative energy on our friends? What if we asked ourselves, what invitation to creativity might there be in this moment, in this friendship? When Ruth is on the road back to Bethlehem, oh, I gave you the last one, I didn't mean to. It's all right. The vows she speaks to Naomi, as I've said, they were unprecedented. Where did she come up with this? This was an incredible improvisation in the moment to love Naomi well. Ruth on the threshing floor, she doesn't exactly do, you should go and read it, she doesn't exactly do what Naomi instructs her to do. She seems to improvise. She seems to be flexible with the moment to not just make sure she gets cared for, but to make sure Naomi gets included as well. And I'm convinced even Boaz, he gets drawn into this friendship too. Even Boaz at the town gate. It seems all very legal and correct. The land needs to be redeemed. It's your job. Will you redeem it? The other guy's like, yep, I will redeem it. And he's like, oh yeah, plus Ruth. Um, You need to marry Ruth too. And take care of the the old woman too. (laughs) And then the guy's like, no, never mind. Forget it. I think there was a little bit of improvisation going on there in order to love these two well and to make sure he could be the one to redeem. So it's an invitation to improvise, to be flexible, to extend creative energy towards our friends. And lastly, and perhaps most obviously, this is a costly friendship. We see it in Ruth's sweat and blood. We see them taking risks for each other these different improvised moments. There are real risks involved. They couldn't see the ending as we could. Someone who's very helpful along these lines, perhaps you've read, anybody read Wesley Hill, this book, Spiritual Friendship? He has some helpful things to say about the costly nature of friendship. I'm going to put the quote up here for you. Friendship 
In Christian terms, it's all about giving up oneself for the sake of love and embracing the cost of such radical loyalty. Friendship, in a word, is cruciform. If Jesus is the ultimate author and exemplar of friendship, then we can't fail to remember that his own practice of friendship ended with him strung up on an instrument of imperial torture. Friendship, for him, wasn't an escape route from self-sacrifice. It was the other way around. Self-sacrifice was precisely the way he enacted a life of friendship. There was a, a beautiful little chapter I read in a book on kind of finding Jesus in the Old Testament. I just read it a few weeks ago. And a group of commentators uh, wrote it together and they said, in the book of Ruth, in the last pivotal scene, we the readers are with the characters at the gates of Bethlehem and the questions that hang in the air are, is there a redeemer and will he pay the price? Those are the questions that hang in the air the end of the book of Ruth. A beautiful invitation to not only receive that redemption, but also be co-laborers with the Redeemer. He is looking for people to collaborate with him in this kind of friendship, to be co-laborers in the field, like Ruth, like Naomi, like Jesus. I'm going to end there. And we have... So we have time now for some discussion. Plenty of time. We did that on purpose. Yes. yeah, that was part of my hope to say <clears throat> the scope of redemption in this story is huge. It's not just about one individual's poor decisions and needing help there, but it is about that as well. Um, but the redemption extends into most everything in the whole story, so it is so much bigger than just um, personal guilt. But I wouldn't want to minimize that. That's pretty pretty heavy stuff too <laughs> but I think you, you said it well I don't, I don't have much more to say on redemption as a term more than what I already said that it, that it 
I mean, I love that God so generously kind of, you know, enters our culture and our world and redeems even words and ideas and legal practices and infuses them with the truth of who he is, who we are, what he's done for us. But I don't have much more to say on the word redemption than that. But I like what you said. <laughs> Good. Other things, or other things other people know about redemption? Go for you. Yes. could be welcomed in, could join the community, uh, could even be what looks like she becomes like a teacher of Israel. I mean, obviously, she has become a teacher of Israel, but, you know, there are only two Old Testament books named after women, and there's only one Old Testament book named after a pagan woman. <laughs> and three. So, yeah. Yes? <laughs> we were at Swiss Labrie together, like, almost 20 years ago. Very cool to see you. Um, you have somebody experiences unthinkable Or do I think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see her returning to Israel. She at least returns to the land. She returns to Bethlehem. Um, it does seem like Yahweh is the one who first brings relief, and of course that's what starts her returning. But it seems like it's a relationship that 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 we are required to to involve ourselves by turning and facing the Redeemer. Is that kind of what you're asking? If that doesn't happen, could redemption still happen? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. If if your posture, you're just not sure. Yeah. If you see it, you may try to know it on your best days, but you may not see it. And are you accountable for that posture? Are you accountable for it? Yeah. I mean, Naomi... It's kind of encouraging what a mess she is when she returns. It's not like she's like, yes, Yahweh's going to make everything okay and redeem it all. He's like, Yahweh has destroyed my life. That's the sum total of my faith right now. He has, his hand has gone against me. He's destroyed me. And I'm empty. I have nothing but bitterness. So in some ways that's encouraging when we find ourselves there. She's not left there. 
But it's also, I think, an encouragement to be the Ruths around the Naomi's of the world who can come alongside and not say, once you get your faith together, I'll be your friend. But, you know, I'm going to let you even borrow from my faith while I stand beside you until you kind of have some again of your own. And I'm even going to be a part of helping you see, no, you're not empty. She even shows with her whole self, you know, she brings her back 50 pounds of grain to show her. Really, you have nothing? You're totally empty? She's a part of, you know, not forcing change in Naomi's heart, but at least offering some visuals, some some sweat, you know, to show who Yahweh is. Yes? Um, It's been interesting to me today, with the first session and then the workshop I went to, um, and then this, that just the theme of those glorious ruins. Mm-hmm. there's something going on very personally for me that's very impactful and um, you know, it occurs to me if you were any one of the characters you know, at the beginning of mm-hmm. chapter one we would think okay um, first of all there should have been no famine second of all you know, they should have had babies and the men should have died and they should have all lived happily ever after and hmm. that would have been a beautiful story but what God did is more beautiful. Um, it makes me think of that um, Andrew Peterson song, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and redeemed by love. Mm. And I, just, I think, you know, God's stories are so much higher than our own. Yeah. It's just a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, he is the greatest artist of all time. And uses the materials at hand. <laughs> and they are often, as you said, yeah, broken, and spent. Blessing that family, he blessed the world through their broken. Well said. Thank you. <clears throat> Two days ago, I was studying um, the genealogy in the beginning of the book of Man. Yes. It's so wonderful to see. Ruth is one of three women yes. named and one unnamed in that genealogy. The fact that she's an outsider and no sin involved with the other two, but all three are examples of God's redemption. Yes. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And the fact that the women are included in a male dominant society. <coughs> exactly. In some ways, it would have kind of undercut the validity of the list, but, you know, apologetically, it shows uh, that it's true. They're willing to put them in there. Yeah, that's beautiful. I didn't even mention Matthew. Thank you. Yes? It's just a person. I've been meditating on the fourfold promise to Abraham. Mm-hmm. And it put all this together. It just occurs to me how Ruth exemplifies the promise. I'll, I will um, make you a great nation. <laughs> and I will bless you. Mm-hmm. And I will make your name great. Mm-hmm. And, and you will be all a the nations of the earth will be blessed. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. That's good. That's really good. <laughs> Thank you. I love that. Yes, sorry. Over there, first yellow shirt. Um, I love the phrase you use that this is an initiated of planter. Mm. But it feels a little intimidating. <laughs> and, and, and it 
culture that's like, get it, do it, make your plans, chase after this. Kind of, mm. Where does that fall for you, and what does that look like if, if you are a follower of Jesus, mm-hmm. and you believe in redemption, yeah. but not just making it happen? Kind of, yeah. Where do we follow that? Where do we live with that? What does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> Certainly what I was trying to highlight is uh, that each person is, is given a chance to be a part of the kind of forward movement of redemption, that it's not just everyone waiting for the man to do what he needed to do, which would have been common in that society, and it wasn't just like, well, God's in charge, so he'll do whatever he needs to do, and that's what he does, I'll just do my thing. Instead, there's this. they're given the dignity of being a part of even kind of jump-starting the next, the next step in the plan. So that was my reason for using that, to say everyone's invited to be a part of it. But that's also why I wanted to say it all has to be embedded in the larger role that can only be Yahweh's, that can only be God's, that we would never be the engine behind redemption coming to our family or coming into our own heart or coming into our town or our church or our nation, whatever it might be. But in trusting that God is the one who is at work, who is always at work, it can still give us the courage to join in, to co-labor, to collaborate, to creatively imagine what might, what might I do to join in on the redemption that he is faithfully working at. Yeah, that's good. Yes? Yeah. Um, I wonder if you have a handle of Oh, good gracious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I, I think I mostly began to see and be drawn to and inspired by this friendship out of feeling its lack, honestly. Um... I do have some, some dear friends that have lasted a long time, <laughs> um, but I don't think I could put any of my stories forward as, here's what it looks like to be a friend like Ruth. I truly have come to this text and come to this story hungry to taste this myself, to live like this myself, and to, to know other friends who might live this way towards me, to be honest. Yes, Jack. And a from that... I think in our times, you think of friendship as something you choose. Yeah. You know, your family you can't choose. You get to choose your friend. Right. Except it isn't always that great. Because <laughs> um, I'm going to choose you, too. <laughs> and that's how loneliness sets in. Yeah. And what's interesting is that this story, I mean, there's very little relational choices that grow together. But in that, there are choices nevertheless. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they're family, you have to put out mother-in-law. Yeah. I'm going to be friend to you. Yeah. And I wonder if there's something in that that we get things that get switched around and we get we're looking for the friend. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, I mean, maybe I think the person around us that we need to be friend to. Yes. Yeah. Who might not be the obvious choice? Yeah. yeah. Somebody more like a Naomi in our life. Yeah. yeah maybe it's an invitation to find the the bitter person in your life. Desperately needs a friend. (laughs) But I would say that Ruth was... (laughs) Somebody raised their hand. They are the bitter friend. (laughs) Ruth needs a friend. (laughs) But 
I would say Ruth did truly choose. I mean, culturally speaking, it would have been absolutely appropriate and right for her to go back to Moab. There was no reason for her to go except, well, I don't know. We would have to kind of guess, you know, Yahweh's good care for them both, knit them together. But I think she chose strongly. Yes. I just want to respond to that, that um, bitterness is um, hmm. just the end game here. As there are people all around that. Mm-hmm. We use the word broken. Yeah. Um, but really, what that's embodying is people that have had experiences that have not been able to move into forgiveness. Yeah or trust, and I, I guarantee you, if you interface at all, mm. uh, you know, come back or buy groceries or whatever, you're going to run into two or three people every day that we would call broken, but they are bitter. Yeah. They're unresolved, like Yeah, that's a good word. People are maybe not all the way down the road at bitter, but we're all kind of tempted to be on the road to bitter, <laughs> and so we meet people all along the way. And uh, we can be a friend to all of them. That's good. Thank you. Yes? I would just love to hear you say a little bit about how well as a mom. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's about all we know. I mean, that's kind of what commentators note. Maybe he knew full well the good of reaching out to the foreigner, reaching out to the pagan. That would be easy to say, you're an outsider. You don't belong here. But yeah, we find in him this readiness, this incredible generosity to reach out to the pagan woman. No doubt influenced by that. I don't, I don't know any more than that. That alone is a, is a beautiful point. That Maybe he was kind of schooled in that. Yes? One of the things that strikes from other passages is the... Um the amount of courage that we must have had yeah. to return to a culture that wasn't her own. Mm. And I'm curious if you can maybe explain a little bit more about the cross-cultural differences between the Moab and mm-hmm. Naomi's people because, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, when we look at friendships across cultures, going into a different country, yeah. into a different cultural set, yeah. and clinging to that culture, I mean, that's a sacrifice beyond what I think we understand yeah, isn't it? That is a huge sacrifice. I mean, people do wonder, did she, you know, it's not explicitly said that Elimelech and Naomi, you know, this, their leaving was sin. I mean, there's, we can draw together enough to say you shouldn't leave the promised land in a famine. Um, but it could have been that in their family, Ruth still noted something different, something unique. That, you know, Moab's god, Chemosh, is that his name? Anybody know? (laughs) Wouldn't have inspired this kind of loyalty, this kind of self-sacrificial, loving life towards, yeah, not just someone from a different culture, but someone of a different generation. I mean, how rare is that? So it could be that she had seen something in their life, in that family, that to her was better than returning to Moab. She knew she was, even if they were going into the wilds of the time of the judges, she had some sense, some hope, maybe, I'm speculating, that um, it would be a better plan to stick with Naomi, even with the cost of a whole new culture. And 
again, she didn't know there was a husband on the horizon. Her promise was to stick with Naomi until she died. Because it looked to Naomi like she would die alone. I mean, that's essentially where she was left at that point. And Ruth comes in to say, no, you won't. I will stay with you until you die. In fact, again, Carolyn Custis James says, Ruth takes that onto herself. She basically says to Naomi, you won't die alone. But in so doing, without knowing what was going to happen, she's essentially saying, I will be the one to die alone. Because she's the younger, you know, if all things kind of went according to... So, yeah, maybe something compelled her to join Israel. Yes. Krista. Um, what do you think has been the strength of healthy boundaries in this friendship, in a strong friendship like this? And the story really doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> She's just kind of all in. She's all in. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting that I don't, we're not given a ton, for sure, in the text as far as boundaries between them, between the two of them. But it's interesting that the culture of the day would have said, obey her, Ruth. Especially, I'm thinking of the threshing floor scene. That the rules would have been, do exactly what she does. Sorry, exactly what she instructs. And I find it interesting that Ruth seems to improvise. That Ruth, her individual self, even what she desires, what she hopes for Naomi, is a part of the relationship too. She's not just like Naomi's puppet going to Boaz and lying down on his feet. She brings her whole self into the situation, initiates uh, a slightly different plan. Uh, so that, that speaks to boundaries a little bit. She's not erased in her love of Naomi, is my point. It's not like Ruth gets reduced down to whatever Naomi wants, whatever Naomi says. That would be kind of a boundaryless relationship, right? Instead, she's still a real person in their plans, in their little conferences they have. Yes, yes, sir. You're teaching us and wonderfully encouraging to me that Ruth is in the tradition of much of scripture where the outsiders get the gospel better than the insiders wow. yep. almost every time yep. and especially in the ministry of Jesus <laughs> uh, so you really heightened that for me I appreciate it yeah you're welcome it's the same in Jonah I started off talking about Jonah the, the pagan sailors are the, one, are the ones that are like wait what? Your God is in charge of the ocean? <laughs> That's the problem. And Jonah doesn't even seem to get that. They're like evangelizing him. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, you mentioned Leslie Hill. Um, not to push it too far, but do you think there's like room for making commitments to one another that are either overt or, oh yeah, maybe, uh, yeah, overt or explicit? Within like singles and families or other things or yeah again I don't want to get all controversial or anything but it's not controversial it's beautiful <laughs> yeah I I love that about his book his kind of historical research that shows this wouldn't be a brand new idea he even goes back to Ruth and Naomi as an example of um, same sex friends um, yeah making vows. But remain, but it's a celibate friendship. It's not resulting in a sexual relationship. They're not marriage vows, but they're friend vows. He makes a strong case for that. I think absolutely. 
there are liturgies that exist in church history for doing exactly this. And, I mean, you wouldn't want to do it lightly. There are vows as binding as marriage vows, but is there a place for it? That was your question? Yeah. Yes. And also between, like, singles and families and communities, communities, basically. Yes. Yeah. We don't make any vows that agree for each other, but I don't know. Um, but there may very well be be intentional communities where it's taken that seriously, where there's a, a liturgy and a formal, a formal vow ceremony. Yes. Yeah. Often we make vows in church membership. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, I so often think the first church I joined, um, which was like my home church, the vows I made were for, um, for her purity and her peace. And I was quite young, but for some reason that phrase has really stuck in my mind, especially at different seasons where I've been annoyed with my church or tired of the people or it's all just too weird or whatever. God has just kind of embedded that phrase in my heart. I come back again and again to, what does it mean for me to live toward her purity and her peace? So, yes, this is an invitation to even consider those vows, or baptismal vows as well. Yes? Um, no, I'm fully formulated yet, but... That's okay. Um, with what struck me earlier, you, you phrase, she left her father and mother and went to a foreign land. Yes. And I just, perhaps I'm struck by that since. I'm new to Nashville, but it also strikes me that Nashville is such a place where so many people have left their community. Are you calling Nashville a promised land? No. <laughs> but this idea of, of the value of leaving your homeland mm. and going friendless yeah. and committing to a new place people to invest in in make your own and I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on that yes pilgrimage I mean pilgrimage is a huge recurring theme throughout the scriptures and I think it does apply when we up and move to a new place especially if we think God is leading us God is making a way where there seems to be no way um However, in our day, I think the, the, the more challenging thing isn't to imagine I'm a pilgrim. Everybody's ready to imagine that. But to work out some measure of loyalty, actually staying is, uh, you know, Wendell Berry has a lot to say on that, <laughs> of place and commitment. Pilgrimage, definitely. But also, yeah, Ben's going to be talking about this, kind of setting out, venturing out, this longing we have but also this longing to be at home, to be at rest, and how our hearts long for both, and the scriptures are full of both. In our day, I'd say, it's not that we need to encourage people to go be pilgrims. (laughs) We seem to need more encouragement to stay loyal and love well. I need more encouragement to do that. I'm I'm more ready to be a pilgrim. There was was another hand I thought I saw. Yes, Mary Frances. Um, this is just a comment I wanted to make about um, this question in front about vows, like the appropriateness of friendship vows. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just interesting to 
to think about this more just in terms of covenantal relationships. Okay. Um, we tend to only talk about covenantal relationships when we're talking about marriage. Yes. But well, the whole Bible is about covenant. And in thinking about, when you do think about a marriage covenant, um, there's a there's a verbal vow, but there's also this physical act. There you go. Of binding. And I do think even within friendship, I love that embodiment. <laughs> was one of the things that you listed because I think in friendship there's a way that we, it's not it's not sexual intimacy but there's a way that we physically commit. Yes. I mean it's a it's a way of, of, of being present, not just making a verbal promise, but making a physical promise in a way of like I will haul your couch downstairs. <laughs> I will call grain on my back. I will yeah. and so I think that it's just a different way of thinking of covenant. It's, it's a different type of covenant, but I think when you talk about that, but I just wanted to kind of attach that. Yeah, that's good. To the idea of, of vows and a more quote-unquote committed way of thinking about Thank you. That's good. Yeah. Sometimes our friendships can be another iteration of, like, we're just brains on a stick. Like, it, as if it's just brain-to-brain friendship. And I was trying to make the point that, yeah, it actually includes your whole self. And when it includes your whole self, it can be beautifully incorporated in the redemptive work of God. I mean, we're called the body of Christ. You know, isn't that even an invitation to be in our bodies, to employ our bodies in our creative caring for one another? That's good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.